Welcome to the Spinning Wheels podcast, powered by Greenlight Sports and Entertainment, with your hosts, Guy Smith and Paul Woodford. You're listening to episode 10 of the Spinning Wheels podcast. If you're listening sometime in the future, firstly, do not set your DeLorean to travel back to 2020. Waste of time. Secondly, I have to tell you that we've been recording these podcasts every week, pretty much every week, since the beginning of the lockdown, which basically means racing driver Guy Smith and I have been on a two-man mission to save your sanity with fascinating stories from behind the scenes of four-wheeled motorsport. Guy, last time we had Jason Plato talking of sanity. Uh, he was on top form. <laughs> sanity? I would say more insanity. When he's, when, insanity and Jason Plato go, go much better. But uh, yeah, he was on good form and uh, you know what a character. In fact, I've actually downloaded his audiobook um, of his How Not to Be a Professional Racing Driver. I'm really enjoying that. And uh, yeah, Jason was on, on really good form. And uh, you know what a fantastic career he's had. It's, it's, he's, he's done it, I wouldn't say he's done it the hard way, but he hasn't done it the traditional way. He's, he's definitely, um, you know, launched himself. But uh, yeah. What not many people doorstep Frank Williams though, do they? Well, that's true. Not yeah, exactly. There's not many people. But at the end of the day, he got in the drive and is a, is a double British Touring Car Champion and he's still going strong at 50. So um, as again, it shows that hard work does pay off. Yeah, and we've had some great stories so far. If you are just listening to this podcast and it's the first one you've stumbled on, we've got a whole back catalogue, really, 10 uh, podcasts now for you to listen to. You can watch them on YouTube, you can listen to them on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you follow us on Instagram, on Twitter as well, because we tend to wheel in a car relevant to our guest into the virtual studio on Instagram, which has been quite fun, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been great actually. We've had, uh, I say, we've had some great guests. I mean, I think we've we've just about covered all the bases, and it's great. Uh, today's guest as well is is fantastic. So it, we're looking at motorsport from a different angle, really. Um, we really are. We've done drivers, co-drivers, and now not all iconic motor racing victories take place on the racetrack or indeed on the rally stage. Some battles are fought and won in the boardroom. Quite often, history is made behind a desk before a racing car is even wheeled out of the transporter for the first time, and criminally. These are often the stories that go untold, but not today, because we're joined by the man who masterminded Bentley's return to Le Mans, the first man to take on the role of director of motorsport since the company's founder, W.O. Bentley, in the 1930s. Today, we return to the story of that famous victory from 17 years ago, as we welcome Brian Gush to our virtual studio. Welcome to Spinning Wheels, Brian. Thank you very much, Paul. Hi, Guy. Ah, yeah, it's good, good to have you here. The stories behind the scenes, Brian, fascinate me. I said to you before we came on, I love the story of the British motor industry because of all these stories that came out years after and people never knew about them because they happened behind these big wooden closed doors in the corridors of power. So you really do need to go behind those doors for us today and, and give us the, the story of that Le Mans return for Bentley, the return to motorsport, if you will. Yeah. Well, maybe, yeah, okay. maybe, Brian, actually, a good place to start would be a little bit about um, your kind of how you joined the, the VW group. Because obviously you, you hail from South Africa, as we can tell yeah. by your accent. Um, <laughs> it may be, maybe a good place to start the journey, really, is how you sort of went through VW and ended up at, at Bentley. Okay, well, <laughs> I started off uh, with mechanical engineering, but my, um, my motorsport interests were always motorcycles. So I started riding motocross um, at the age of 16. Um, probably a bit late these days to start, but um, that's where I started. And I was uh, just mainly interested in motorcycles and then did mechanical engineering. Um, started off in the, in the motor industry with a, a training period at Mercedes-Benz and then 
joined Ford South Africa uh, and <clears throat> doing uh, powertrain and chassis at, at Ford, I came across Bernie Mariner, um, who is uh, fairly iconic in the in the world of rallying uh, back in the back in the day, um, <clears throat> and uh, it sort of the the motorsport um, aspect of Ford in those days rubbed off on me, and I, I worked quite closely with the motorsport department, um, helping them uh, build special uh, um, engine blocks. Uh, for for the rally cars, uh, and interestingly enough, we'll come on to it later. But uh, that's where I met Malcolm Wilson for the first time um, <clears throat> when he came to drive the RS seventeen hundred T there. Um, but my my sort of introduction into into motorsport programs was then building the uh, the Sierra XR eight, uh, which was a five liter V eight in the Sierra uh, as an homologation special. Um, for for Group One racing um, back in the day, <clears throat> and there were some iconic cars built uh, in South Africa: the XR8 Sierra, um, the Triple Three BMW, uh, and the Three Liter GTV Alpha. All of them unique to South Africa and all built uh, down there as homologation specials for Group One racing. So that was really my <clears throat> my intro into uh, into motorsport within the company. Um, and then uh, when Ford um, uh, divested their interests in, uh, in South Africa, um, I moved to Volkswagen um, and started a, a long career with Volkswagen. Um, firstly, in, um, in Volkswagen South Africa, uh, also spent a, a period in, in Wolfsburg. Um, and then um, as uh, head of engineering, uh, Volkswagen South Africa, I was transferred to uh, Bentley as um, engineering operations director at the end of 99, beginning of 2000. And that's probably where the, um, the Le Mans story um, starts, um, because um, <clears throat> joining Bentley, there was um, we were quite a, a few new, new guys uh, joining the company. Uh, recently bought by um, VW, brought into the group. That's a big, big, and, uh, yeah, a change, big time of change, wasn't it, for the group? Because obviously, uh, yeah. they, uh, BMW had, had bought and uh, taken control of Rolls of Rolls Royce, hadn't they? And the VAG group had taken Bentley. So, yeah, that's that's a story. Uh, that's a podcast all in its own. <laughs> the story. <laughs> the legend has it you found a dusty old race car that was half built, sat there waiting <laughs> for someone to love it. <laughs> well, what happened was um, my colleague uh, Adrian Hormark was then um, uh, director of um, sales and marketing, and we took uh, we had just uh, put the uh, the Bentley engine back into the Enage, and uh, we took uh, some custom, and uh, and that's where the Le Mans story starts um, with with Bentley. We were um, at at the race, and uh, I met. Uh, uh, compatriot um, Andre van der Watt there. Also, I knew knew Richard Lloyd, um, and and deep into the night we we were talking about um, their plans. And what had happened was um, after the the Audi um, introduction to Le Mans, and, and Richard Lloyd um, was instrumental in introducing Audi to Le Mans. Uh, he persuaded them to go from the touring car successes in the in the UK. And then um, 
the R8R and R8C um, story um, uh, had had played out in uh, in '99, and the uh, and Audi had gone for the for the R8R, the open car. Um, the R8C then remained as a as a, 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 a car that had been built by RTN in Norfolk. Um, RTN, the, the facility in Norfolk, had been bought by um, by Audi. Uh, they built the car um, with Richard Lloyd running the team, John Wickham involved. Um, Tony Southgate uh, designed that car um, with Peter Ellery working with him. Um, and then the car was basically um, Tony Southgate, the, the project Brian, was scrapped. Sorry. Wasn't it Tony so, Southgate that designed the Toyota? Was it? Uh, he designed the Toyota, and then I think he started off with the the R8 uh, R, uh, R8C, yeah. And then um, and then Peter Ellery took over. So then, <clears throat> um, what uh, what happened was the in in the VW Group. Um, uh, Dr. Pierre had already decided to, um, uh, or had the idea for the modular W12 uh, and W18, W16, W12 and W8 engines. And he wanted the W12 to have a, a bit of a reputation. So Van der Vaart, uh, who was head of VW Motorsport, got the, got the brief to build this, um, uh, to, to use a W12 engine in this R8C. Um, well, by the time they shoehorned this engine in, the engine was being developed in Wolfsburg, um, but it was a massive thing, um, a lot bigger than the, the RD V8. And eventually, the, um, he had, Van der Vaart had been given the, the budget for this, and eventually when, um, when they looked at the implications of fitting it in the car, um, they, they said to him, look, just it's cheaper to build a new car, completely new car. And so they they started designing a new new car, um, and with the design team, hence a bit of simil similarity to the Toyota that you you mentioned, guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of that first car in two thousand and one. <clears throat> anyway, they the engine never made the power, um, ate up all the budget, and the program was canned. So Richard Lloyd and his team were, uh, and John Wickham and, and the guys were. Um, Helping Stefan Johansson, um, Van der Vaart had um, canned the project, um, no engine, and the car was only half built. So um, we hatched a plan. Then I said, "Well, if we if we can get an engine approved, we could um, we could take over the project." And uh, so then the next morning, about nine ten o'clock, Richard Lloyd and myself went down to the RD tent. I knew Dr. Pefkin. Um, from the days at BWSA, and uh, I said to him, he knew that I was at Bentley. I said, "Look, there's a project that we could run if we could buy your engine, uh, a customer Audi engine." And he laughed because Audi was running first, second, and third. Uh, he had a massive cigar, a big Stetson on, and he was in an expansive mood, and he said. Yeah, if you can put in a German engine in a British car, um, then good luck to you. Uh, and so I said, okay, is that a deal if we shake on that? Uh, and he said, yeah, there you go. And we shook hands on the deal. Brilliant. And that's how uh, we got the deal to build, uh, to use the Audi engine. 
Um, <clears throat> so that was that was in the morning, but we hadn't told anybody else yet. Um, so I, I discussed it with Adrian on the way back from the mall. And then the two of us went in to see uh, the CEO at the time, Tony Gott, and said, look, this, this is a plan. This could work. So he sent us down to, um, to Norfolk, uh, Adrian and myself, to have a look at the project. And the project was just really was just a, a, a kit of parts. They'd um, uh, assembled a, a car with a Nicholson McLaren engine to try and um, to try and get it to run, sort of to show that the budget was had been used. Um, <clears throat> and while I, uh, I I nipped up to the uh, to the toilet for a, a, a quick comfort break, and in the toilet I meet uh, uh, Helmut Strachek. I said, "What what are you doing here?" He was he had taken over from Bodebat as uh, um, as head of VW Motorsport. He said, "Well, I've come to buy this project because we're going to do a 24-hour record at Nardo." I said, "Come on, you can't do that. Um, I want that." So there and then, you know, just um, in in RTN's <laughs> men's room, we shook on the deal that he would walk away from it and and we'd get it. And so that's how we got got the project. Um, we took it back to uh, to Bentley um, under strict secrecy. We then started funding the project from my engineering budget, um, put the car together, brought it up to crew in August 2000. Nobody knew about it. Absolutely nobody. Only Adrian, Tony Gott and myself knew about it at that stage. We put it in a room and Dr. Pierre came to see us every month uh, in those days. And um, uh, I presented the project to him um, with the car in the room, um, a few slides in those days, there were transparencies, an overhead projector. Um, and I went through the, the project with him uh, and he said, he, he, he gave me, a, he said, I'll, I'll think about it. <laughs> and uh, that's, that was the genesis of it. Um, but that was only just the start, um, because that's when the boardroom battles started. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's a big commitment, isn't it? I mean, I can imagine from a financial point of view to make that commitment for effectively a new a new company starting almost from from zero. Um, you know, to rebuild the company and then to sort of financially commit to a Le Mans program. It's a big it's a big ask, isn't it? Well, it was it was quite critical um, that we established Bentley as a brand in its own right. And, and we had been discussing that as to what, what do you do to uh, get Bentley onto the map and establish it? Because if uh, when we started there, um, you know, people said they worked at Royce's. Uh, if you answer, they answered the phone, Rolls-Royce motorcars. Um, if you ask somebody, you know, uh, anybody who worked, they'd say, yeah, I work at Royce's. So Bentley was... Um, was not at the at the forefront of everybody's minds. They were pretty upset that Rolls Royce had left, and um, but Pierre was adamant that he had bought the right brand. Um, but uh, it's it's how do you get how do you get the brand to be acknowledged as as an independent brand and come out of the shadows of Rolls Royce? So um, uh, Pierre certainly understood that motorsport could do that. Um, the interesting thing. Uh, from there was that um, I'd started working with with uh, Richard Lloyd. Um, we'd meet every Friday at 12 o'clock. That's when the factory knocked off in those days. 
and we started doing um, budgeting and uh, with my engineering experience i always did zero based budgets said right what do we need and richard was pretty um uh, organized on that and got john wickham involved he said to john come come back from the us <clears throat> i think he was working with stefan over there and me and you yes of course yeah <laughs> the blonde guy smith yeah, right. <laughs> um and uh, <clears throat> and then john came back and we and we started hammering out a budget and the budget was um you know i thought well it's okay we we went through everything it was a really really meticulous budget as only john wickham can do yeah um and then uh, in in my innocence i took it um, to Wolfsburg. so adrian myself this is still top secret now adrian myself and uh, antonio got went across to Wolfsburg, uh, and we presented it and that's when all hell broke loose um, firstly i showed a picture of the car and it was nothing like the the r8c that um, they'd been given a budget to with this w12 in it looked more like a toyota than a uh, than an r8c so Pentacorn was upset about that um, and it was interesting enough burnt pishish readers uh, first day at work um, in, in the VW group and of course he had won them on with BMW in, two, in 99 and he said to me um, Mr. Gush only one thing is certain is that you'll be back here because if you don't win you'll know all the reasons why you didn't win and you'll come back if you do win, you'll like the feeling so much that you'll also be back. So I really want to see a five-year plan. Um, so for me, that was a victory. Um, I didn't get a no. And the critical thing in, in, in those situations is don't get anybody to say no. Just get, uh, get to go back. You know? So I got to go back. So I went back to Richard and I said, we've got to do a five-year plan. Richard said, I've never, I've never seen a five-year plan in motorsport. <laughs> he yeah. said, you know, the, Mostly, we work from, from year to year and we're grateful we get a budget together for the next year. Anyway, so we said, well, five years is probably too much. We went um, back with a, a three-year plan. But then <clears throat> that was also uh, difficult because what I hadn't done was check what my Audi and my VW colleagues had put in for budgets. And uh, that's when uh, things got tricky because our budget was a quarter of what VW had put in to run them all with the 12 and uh, a sixth of what Audi had spent. So you can imagine there were some red faces wrong because Audi was at the table and, and VW was at the table. There were some red faces. So I was told you just can't do it for that. Sorry, impossible. Um, which I was a bit indignant because my budget was carefully worked out. I said, yes, we can. And they said, no, you can't. You're going to just overrun the budget. You're just trying to get an approval. Um, and then you'll come back for more. I said, I won't. That's the budget. <laughs> anyway, eventually, um, uh, Adrian said, look, just add 10% to keep him happy, which we did. And um, we gave him back the 10% at, uh, at the end of the year. Did you really? The budget was, um, was absolutely accurate. Wow. Wow. Um, but that was the, the, the start of it all. And um, <laughs> then we started recruiting drivers. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, I mean, you had because originally you had um, you obviously had James Weaver was the sort of 
first guy on board, wasn't he? Because I, I remember when I came to, to meet with you guys, James was testing. That's when it had the Nicholson uh, engine in, I think. I remember at the time. I remember yeah. a, a wet, a very wet uh, Silverstone. Uh, and he right, was yeah. around. And obviously had Butch Lightsinger, Andy Wallace, um, which I guess came... Well, we, um, I, I, I inherited Stefan Otelli with the program because um, VW had contracted him as a test driver. Yeah. So um, uh, I got uh, agreed to take Stefan um, straight away. Um, Richard had good contacts with James, James Weaver, yeah. so we pulled him on board. Yeah. And then also Andy Wallace, James pulled Andy Wallace on. So yeah. You've given us the business side of things here, Brian, but you know, as a motorsport enthusiast and a fan watching this program from the outside and then watching you know, the, the years before the victory and then the victory itself, there was a huge amount of romance and, and theatre to Bentley returning to Le Mans since the 1930s. Was that in your mind? Was that ever prevalent at this stage? Or was it very much just, let's get this thing off the ground from a business and from a technical point of view first? Uh, well, I was under a lot of pressure not to go in, in 2001. Um, they believed I needed to, we needed to do more testing um, and, get, uh, and, and be absolutely certain of things and only go in 2002. Um, but my experience has always been you, you, you strike while the iron's hot, you've got an approval, you go for it, you never know what the business is going to do. If there's a downturn, um, you, you, you go with what you've got. And um, my view at the time was that the engine was good. Uh, we knew that. Um, it had uh, got a podium one and um, we needed, uh, we could use that. We knew that the gearbox was good because we were using the, um, the extract box, the, um, as opposed to Audi running the Ricardo box. So we knew it was the package uh, could do it, but we did not know where, where we would be. There were, the expectations um, were enormous. Um, and uh, I, th I think the rest of the paddock didn't know what to expect from us. Um, with Martin Brundle on board, that was, that was a good, um, uh, a good find or a good um, uh, recruitment because Martin brought a, a real level of leadership. Uh, I think you'll agree, Guy, yeah. in those yeah. early days. Um, and and really is a, uh, was a good peddler, really got the car um, uh, to perform well and, and made Audi sit up a note when we went testing with them. Uh, we shared a track and went testing and uh, that was probably a strategic error. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, Paul, the, the, the pressure was, was enormous because nobody knew what to expect of us. Um, and uh, we turned up as new boys in, in the paddock, but you know, we had the, the livery was right. I used the, um, our stylists to do the livery. Um, Raul Piri's, uh, Dirk von Brauch, Raul Piri's did that livery, and that was really, really good. Um, you know, harking back, not, not too nostalgic but just um, at the right level of, of nostalgia. Um, we made quite a big thing about the specification um, of, the, of the 1930s, you know, 1930s winner and, and this car. Um, and we got a lot of interest and, and you know, marketing, uh, motorsport, we're all enthusiasts, but motorsport is essentially a business tool. You've got to use it uh, to promote the business. And we were on a mission to make sure that Bentley got noticed. So the turnout of the um, of the crew 
they were all immaculately turned out. Um, you know, Richard took a lot of time over over our, our uh, paddock gear. Um, we had strict dress codes. Make sure that everybody was um, keeping the name Bentley up there. Yeah. Um, because so, Bentley obviously yeah. had a, a very strong, well, arguably the, one of the strongest histories in, in Le Mans racing, because obviously with all the success from the famous Bentley boys, Bernardo, you know, Birkin, Davis, all those guys, I mean, absolute legends. Um, and, and, you know, for Bentley to come back to Le Mans, I guess it was the absolute sort of perfect tool to, to sort of put Bentley's name back in the spotlight. Um, and I know when I joined, you know, I didn't really know too much about the Bentley boys. Um, but I, I knew that it was in my interest and I was curious to, to read about them and find out about the history, about what had gone before, before, you know, cause people say, no, you're a Bentley boy now. Well, that's great. But what is a Bentley boy? And then you read back about those guys and they were absolute legends because not only were they amazing racing car drivers, they were, they were absolute playboys. They were fighter pilots. They were, you know, they were, they were just, just you know, absolute legends. And um, I think that's kind of what, one of the reasons what makes Bentley such a unique brand. And I think we were all very conscious about representing that. And, and I remember you saying in the marketing team, you know, we're going to go racing, but we're going to do it differently. We're going to be Bentley. And like you said, the way that we dress, the way the cars were presented, you know, we'd have cucumber sandwiches and cups of tea in the hospitality, which is just very, very British, but it's, it's, it's got to be different and stand out from the crowd, which I think, we, you know, I think, I think we did really well. Well, the Bentley boys uh, mixing their roles, guy. At this point, we have to remember that Brian, you were, you know, a director of of the company. You were in charge of the road car operations as well as the uh, the race car operation. Was there any worry either on your part or the the boss's part that you might just lose a bit of focus and your attention might be wholly on this Le Mans project? Because you know, it'd be like a kid in a sweet shop having got the yes, surely. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I was younger then than now. To paraphrase uh, Bob Dylan. Um, yeah, a lot of energy and uh, a lot of effort because we were in the middle, as you say, middle of the Conti GT program, which was something I also didn't want to give up. You know, um, the, the uh, mechanical side of that car was, was uh, really um, important to the, to the company. Um, and the Le Mans program, yeah, um, it, was, it was a unique opportunity to do both a road car and uh, and the race car uh, there was a lot of pressure at times to uh, to jump in uh, a full time but i also didn't want to lose the opportunity to develop the first car back you know the first um, gt um but you know if you come back to the business side of it and and what we were trying to achieve um we got that podium in 2001 which nobody expected um it really was was out of the blue um, we were ecstatic with uh, the level of support we had from the, the, the colleagues from crew that traveled there. It was just incredible. Yeah. And uh, when we got, uh, everybody referred to themselves working at Bentley. Slowly the, uh, the, the, the team gear sort of, um, and the team colors uh, were being worn that people just, just overnight, uh, virtually started um, referring to themselves as working for Bentley, yeah. and and that's the power of motorsport. You know, it's remained as well. A really good friend of mine, Phil Bramill, works um, for Bentley, and he knows you actually, Brian. He, he said yeah, he was quite excited we were talking, and and <laughs> I, I see that pride in him. And he went to that race, and yeah, 
he sent me some great photos of you actually one on the tour of cheshire in a Lodzilan, no less uh, but, <laughs> but he's you know he talks about bentley as more than just a job it's really nice to see we all sit there and listen to his tales of you know motorsport and he goes to the races with his kids and it's a good lifestyle for the people who are working there it is a passion it's an absolute passion it's not just a job it's it's a passion for the brand and, and I mean, the guy you're mentioning, you know, the history that went before and the Bentley punches above its weight in terms of, of history. You know, we uh, only at that stage, only five victories, only five victories, you know, compared to Ferrari's nine, you know, Porsche was, was already then on 12 or, or 13 victories. You know, it was, um, you know, in, in the general scheme of things, um, uh, very few victories, but as you say, the, the characters were larger than life. Mm. And, and we tried to um, portray that in everything we did, just doing it a little bit differently, making sure that uh, everything was just a little bit more special. Um, and it doesn't take a lot, it doesn't take massive budget to do that, um, as, as I was very proud to, to, to prove. And that was probably as, as good as the the podium in 2001 was the fact that we stuck to the budget and didn't use the extra that we were told to put in. And yet, is that the end of your battles then? Do your battles stop with the podium and handing the budget back? Do you go into year two with a, a fresh lease of life and, a, and free reign to do what you want for year two? Well, yeah, you, had to buy a new clutch. you had to buy a new clutch after 2001, after I fried. <laughs> yes, yeah. well, I came... I, I came to fetch Guy on the scooter. Yeah, well, Brian came to fetch me because obviously I was there and I was, that was my first, well, actually my second Le Mans. Um, in truth, I was probably too inexperienced to be with a factory team. Um, I'd only done Le Mans once before as a rookie and we didn't finish. And Le Mans is a bit like what Brian said about a car. There's, there's so many things that you learn by doing it. It's, 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 a, it's, a, you just, it's all about building up that sort of cookbook of information. And my cookbook was pretty thin at that point. Um, and we developed a, a problem with the car in, in the race because what happened was it's, it would, now Brian, correct me if I'm wrong while I'm talking about this, cause I'm, I, you might know better than I do, but we'd had some brake cooling issues, um, to the rear brakes. So we'd put some sort of like knacker ducks in to try and cool the rear brakes before the race. And, um, there's also like an activator for the gearbox, which obviously signals the shift which was also located somewhere in that kind of area where the, where the sort of these knacker ducks were. And what we hadn't realized, because we're not really tested in the rain, we hadn't, we'd done a fair bit of testing, but it had all been predominantly in the dry. Not one day of testing not in the rain. Not one day, yeah. So, so, of course, in the coupe, there's things like, you know, do the doors leak, do the seals yeah. leak? There's lots of things the that- The wipers stay on the, on the, the screen. Exactly. <laughs> lots of things that, that you- And did they? Yeah, I mean, it, it think, cause when you're going at 200 miles an hour, the wiper actually starts to lift off the screen. So it actually doesn't really do a lot. And then it starts to fog up, and then water comes in. Anyway, it's one of those things that you only learn. If you were tested, you say, well, we need to do this, we need to sort this, because we were in the race. Um, so what happened was Martin was doing a sterling job. I think he, he was either leading or he'd led the race and was up at the front. And it started to rain, and he started to complain that the, he was having trouble with the shifting. But we hadn't really kind of figured out that it was due to the rain that there was a, a gear shift problem. It was just, we thought it was just an electrical issue. Anyway, as the rain subsided, the shifting started to work again. So he's like, okay, I'm okay. I've got, you know, the gears are working again now. So we thought, okay, it's fixed itself. So he did another stint, came, comes in. And as he comes in, I'm next in the car and it absolutely pours down. 
So it absolutely pisses down. And this is my first stint in a works car, you know, with Bentley. And I get in, I think I must have got left the pits in about third place. I was not, you know, we were at the sharp end. And um, I think they put me on intermediates because I think they thought it was going to be a shower, but around the rest of the track was dry. So we'll go on intermediates and you might struggle for a couple of corners, but then it will, you'll be fine. Anyway, I go up behind the pace car and I go down the pit lane and the wiper's on, but it's not doing anything. And then, because we've done a driver change and I've got in, it's now suddenly started to steam up. So the side windows were completely steamed up and the front window was predominantly steamed up apart from a small bit in the middle. So I'm driving down the straight and I'm kind of like this, trying to look down the middle of the, the, the street. But I'm behind the safety car, but I'm on intermediates and it's absolutely chucking it down. So I'm struggling to even keep up with the safety car. It's that, it's that bad. Anyway, long story cut short, it goes green. I, I don't know what happens, but we get running and I, somewhere along the line in the stint, the, the shifting starts to play up again. So what ultimately ended up happening was I came down to Indianapolis corner into Arnard, which is probably the tightest corner on the track. It's the second gear um, in the dry. Um, and I'd come down to Indianapolis in sixth gear, tried to downshift into, to get down to the lower gear into second, and it wouldn't downshift. So my inexperience was I tried to just go around the corner in sixth gear and try and get around it, which of course it, it couldn't do. And the engine stalled. So... I'm thinking, okay, well, I can't downshift. So I try and start the engine, got the clutch in, try and start the engine, but I'm in sixth gear and I'm trying to slip the clutch to get the car moving, to get the momentum going, to get back to the pits. And I kept doing this and doing this and doing this. And of course, ultimately, the clutch just the clutch fried itself. I mean, <laughs> destroyed itself. So the car's like virtually on fire. Um, and of course, what Andy did, where, where Andy was a you know, far more experienced driver than I was, he, he had this, exactly the same problem comes around Indianapolis in sixth gear, realizes he can't get down, just basically straight lines it, goes across the grass, you know, gets, keeps it going, goes through the Porsche curves, manages to get back to the pits. And of course, they're able to fix it because we know, we know what the problem was. Whereas in our car, they couldn't fix it because all oh, numbed to here, couldn't get it back. So that's where the experience, you know, really counts um, at, at places like, well, and, and ball endurance races, to be fair. How tough was that moment for you, Guy? Did you think that could be dream over or... Well, it's, it's not not the not the ideal it's not the ideal um, uh, debut, is it? But you know, at the end of the day, you know, it was just it was just lack of experience. But um, I mean, luckily, luckily the, the other car got a result and got on the podium, um, and the drivers all dressed up with all the goggles and the, you know all the sort of the like boiler suit things, and, and actually managed to get a great result. So I think that definitely helped, you know, take some of the pain away for sure. Just just talk us through the feeling of getting back into the pits. Just for someone who's not been there, you guys have been at Le Mans, you've, you've competed at the sharp end, you've won Le Mans. Just tell us what that feels like. Tell us about the emotion of that moment. You've, you've cooked the clutch, you're, you're walking back to the pits. He's not walking, I'm driving him on the scooter. Brian came and collected me. I think I was, I was, I was probably pretty upset. I, I, but I, I think it's, it's a good question. It's, it's a hard one to explain. Um, I, I think I have so many different emotions because, of course, there's all the testing that's gone on. There's the build-up of the week. You know, you're tired. You've had the highs of the race, the lows. There's so much going on. Um, it's difficult to pinpoint one emotion because I think there's lots of emotions. I think just general, just disappointment. Great, great disappointment. Um, but, you know, that's... that's there's, no, uh, there's no <clears throat> clear evidence that, that the car could have um, got going. Uh, if we got back to pits, maybe we could have changed the compressor 
what was the compressor, the hydraulic lock that had drawn in so much water. I don't think I've ever seen conditions like that. <laughs> There's some pictures with uh, with a bow wave coming down the side of the car. Yeah. And this was going in this knackerduck that guy was talking about, and just the compressor was locking up solid. Yeah. Um, so just, on the other car, we actually put a little cap on with the inlet facing backwards, which uh, uh, which saved it. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, we 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 didn't know what was going on at the time. Yeah. But but for then for two thousand and two, obviously continued with the same car. But um, tell us a little bit about the decision to go to one car from from two to. Well, one. there were a lot of changes, uh, uh, quite a few boardroom changes then. So <clears throat> what happened in in um, the boardroom? We were. We were pretty unhappy about our level of, of performance. We felt that um, we weren't getting as much as we could out of the engine. Um, but this is what happens when you buy a customer engine. We bought probably the best engine on the grid for sure in terms of reliability and performance. But when um, the manufacturers running it, I think it's a little bit like um, you know, Mercedes GP F1 and you know, Williams and the other Mercedes customer cars. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we we had a custom engine, so we made a, a few decisions right after the race. Um, I decided I wanted something that was that was very much more specifically Bentley, um, and asked Ulrich Beretsky to uh, design a or, or change the engine to make it a bespoke Bentley, which was then making it going from a three point six liter to a four liter and um, also we we bought um, the engine which was was interesting the way um, Audi did it we um, I had the agreement with Pefkin to buy the engine so I, I bought a enough engines to for the program for my three-year program um, but of course they didn't tell me that they had a direct injection engine um, in the pipeline so I bought um, port injection engines um, because I didn't know that they had the other engine, they didn't tell me um, that the other engine was running. So they they pitched in 2001 with a direct injection. We were with a port injection. Um, so I said that enough of that. Now we will we want to go to four liter with a direct injection. So we separate ourselves out. Um, that was the one decision that was made the other decision was that Audi had had um, also got a three-year plan approved um, and they wanted to to run a three-year win take the trophy home and then uh, do something different and uh, the boardroom change was that Dr. Pefkin as uh, chairman and uh, as chief executive of Audi was then um, transferred to Bentley as chairman and chief executive. So he moved from the, uh, being responsible for the, the motorsport at, at Audi to being responsible for the whole of Bentley and the motorsport department. So I was called in to explain myself and, um, and um, he, he said, well, <clears throat> you know, given, given what you've experienced to date, can this car win? And I said, well, we really don't we really need a completely new car um, and not a development of this we had to change some things in the 2002 car for regulation change um, <clears throat> and we were pretty far down the line when he came on board uh, so he said right <clears throat> here's the deal uh, you've got 
you're planning two cars again in 2002. <clears throat> you cut uh, you cut down to one car and half the budget. <laughs> so, well, sorry, that doesn't work. <laughs> you cut down to one car and uh, maybe you can take 10 or 20 percent of the budget. But <clears throat> anyway, uh, again, you just don't pick up a no. You say, right, I'll, I'll have a go. I'll try. But I can't promise I'll try. Um, and uh, that was uh, then we, we took the program down to one car to, to save um, money. And um, the uh, Martin want, uh, had his Formula One commentary commitment, so he, he dropped out. Um, well, he had a one year contract with us, and then we had the young guy Smith. <laughs> now it's a lot cheaper, a lot cheaper. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the clutch. Yeah, but, but you see, for, for me, you know, that the thing for me was I remember um, obviously when they went down to one car, and you know, to get to get the um, you know between Brian and, and Dr. Pepkin to say to keep me on as a test driver, um, it was still a great opportunity because I knew that um, I knew what was coming down the line. You know, they knew that whatever what, whatever they were going to do, it was going to be done right, and the potential was there. Um, so to be the test driver, um, while it was disappointed not to be racing, it allowed me to get a load of experience, loads of driving, loads of sports car driving against, you know, some you know, some of the best in the world. And it, it, it actually, I actually sort of needed that that seat time without the pressure just to go and test and test and test. And actually, it was really good for me. And um, it allowed me to spend a lot of time in the new car um, and have a have a have a handle on the new car to get up to speed. So. Um, I think so. So, how did they do that year? They they came. Was it fourth that year? We got fourth, fourth yeah. that year. That was um, Audi's um, swan song with the R8. They wanted to really make an impact, so they 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 pulled out all the stops, yeah. and um, ostensibly they were going to stop after that. And that was the Pefkin, um, Plan. what Pefkin had said, and uh, so we <clears throat> we were happy with her the the fourth place um and we were proving out the new engine uh, the four liter engine the gearbox was bulletproof we we didn't have to worry about trying to change engines and gearboxes within uh, you know uh, seconds um, because we didn't need to that was one of the first questions i was asked by, by pefkin when he came in he said so how long does it take you to change the uh, the gearbox I said well uh, we don't know we haven't really done one <laughs> under race conditions uh, because we don't have to. Because the, the, Audi, the Audi was famous for being able to change it in, yeah. in minutes, wasn't it? Because they had to. <laughs> remember the, uh, do you remember that year, Brian? Do you remember Morgan having a problem? And they get, I was there at that race, and they were in for four hours in the garage changing their gearbox. Do you remember That's that? Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember being fascinated as a kid that this car could be in the garage for four hours and then still go out in the race. <laughs> yeah. Well, Audi was had it down to a to a fine art. They were so they were just changing the whole back end, and with with the gearbox change came your your back two corners, so the dampers, the the brake discs, the calipers, everything on dry brakes, and and in it went. It was amazing. Um, they even had it down to warming warming the whole rear end in blankets um, because of the differential expansion, putting a, a cold gearbox onto a hot engine. Uh, didn't work. They had to get it up to temperature. That, that's a, that's the thing with a with a good Le Mans car because yeah. you know the speed is obviously important, but you've got to think about all those things, haven't you? Because if you if you do need to make a you know if they have a gearbox failure, which they probably you know they, they did, 
it didn't necessarily put them out of the race. They could change it within minutes and actually keep themselves within the race. And, you know, again, if we, if we talk about the, the 2001, 2002 car, I think the general feeling of the car was it's, it's got a fast lap in it and it's, it's a, it's a yeah. pretty good car. It's a pretty good car, but it's not a Le Mans winning car. It's not no. an endurance car because it wasn't easy to drive. Um, no. and, it, and it was tricky. And, and it, it, what you need at Le Mans is you need a car that's good in all conditions, whether it be wet, dry, hot, cold, and easy to drive and to be quick. And I think that was the general feeling, wasn't it, Brian? That while, while the, the, the previous car was, was, was quick on a lap, it wasn't necessarily a Le Mans winning car. Yeah, and uh, it was this level of concentration you needed to keep it uh, going. I remember um, you know, being taken out. I think you took me out in the two-seater once, and it was it was leaping from side to side about a meter across the road when the tires were cold. Yeah, and uh, I remember uh, Dr. Pierre telling me in one of the reviews. So every month I had to report to Dr. Pierre as to what we were doing in the Le Mans program, and he said, um, "So how are you keeping your drivers?" Um, concentrated throughout the race and uh, well I think they fit and they um, they they'll be con uh, concentrating he said so what about air conditioning <laughs> and I didn't need that I didn't need to put air conditioning in yeah. um, and I said well um, I'll, I'll, I'll look into it well sorry guy I never did <laughs> <laughs> you know but to, be, to be honest with you it was never I don't ever really remember it being a big problem um, you know, having, having done the sort of GT racing and driven other cars since then, I've had much more, you know, issues with heat than, than in that particular car. So, um, it would have been very Bentley though, wouldn't it? Would have been very Bentley to have aircon. <laughs> it would have been, yeah, it would have been nice. Yeah. Yeah. It gone with the cucumber sandwiches. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but when I went and asked the Porsche guys what, um, whether, whether he really did have air conditioning in, in any of the, the 917s, I said, don't be no. crazy. It did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, he was quite a formidable guy to report to uh, in those early days. Because I guess Piek, I guess Piek, obviously, you know, he kind of had that a bit of that mystique, a bit, a bit like an Enzo Ferrari, wasn't he? I mean, he's an incredibly powerful guy within, within, yeah. certainly within the within the industry. Um, you know, a brilliant engineer, and uh, you know, he 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 kind of ruled the roof, didn't he? Incredibly knowledgeable, um, and uh, yeah, ruthless, absolutely ruthless. When he started speaking very, very quietly, you knew you were in big trouble. And when his black book came out and he wrote something in it, then, then you really knew. <laughs> your, did, your did you say he'd ask, he'd ask you a question? He'd ask you a question, and if he didn't know the answer, if he asked you, if he asked you again and he didn't get it right, yeah. you literally you were fired. Yeah, then I'll find somebody who does know the answer. Yeah, yeah. that was the standard one. Yeah, uh, and in, in, in the race, if if there was a problem. If you did not know the the, the answer, what what was causing it? He didn't, um, yeah, he didn't expect you to to have the solution, but you needed to know what the cause was. Um, and uh, yeah, it was um, a very demanding guy, but driven, absolutely driven. Yeah. Um, so, so, so yeah, the, the, the podium. Oh, sorry. Taking your, your podium at race one, race two, you've you've scaled the program back a bit and you're starting to, to build for, for the future. Was there still the boardroom part of this story? Was, was there still politics and things to overcome before you came out for 2003? Oh yeah, um, yeah big time because that's when, that, uh, that was really um, a, uh, quite, quite a lot of um, politics then. So if you picture the scene, Audi have now won, won the race three times uh, in succession. They've taken the, the trophy home. 
they're planning on on doing this diesel um and uh, so they put everything uh, into that um but uh, ronald just was running the team and um so Ardy was prepared to let customer teams run um the r8 which is a developed car could win the race as well for sure in in customer hands so you had Audi uk with velox you had uh, team go um they all had the r8 as a weapon um so the competition was there um but with us designing the 2003 car uh, and we we managed to keep it on the island doing it in the uk with rtn with the design team at rtn the, you had quite a few, uh, you had Reinhold just saying, well, yeah, I, um, Dr. Ulrich wanted to keep him, uh, keep Joost, um because when they reeled out the, the R10, they wanted, um, they wanted uh, to have Joost running it. Joost didn't want to sit out. Um, so um, we had a, a meeting in Ingolstadt, I'll never forget, it was in November 2002, and uh, I said, right, so um, which members of the team are you going to take? And uh, that's when we, uh, we had uh, the, the pick of the, uh, of the Just guys. And uh, yeah, who wouldn't take a guy like Ralf Jutner? Um, yeah, a really, really experienced um, race engineer. You wouldn't refuse him. If you've, if you've got this, this focus of winning the race, you just take the best people available. So um, we were we were able to uh, take drivers. So we took um, in Dindo and and Tom. Um, uh, we took guys like Rolf Jutner. Uh, we took um, a number of the key key guys, but also intermixed uh, intermingled them with with the team that we had running because we had stood down a few guys in 2002 running only one car and that was a mixture and that was quite an interesting um behind the scenes meeting where you're going through your guys you had to decide you know you only had so many uh, that you could put into the team and you had to put names in boxes um so it wasn't only the drivers uh, you know you've got six drivers there um that hits the highlight but you know all the way down this team structure you've got names and everybody is as passionate about being in a in an organization chart as the driver is about being in the cockpit so and it's absolutely critical as as you know guy to have the right people in the right job um at that race yeah and of course they, they brought that level that i guess what one thing they brought is their experience but they're also proven winners so yeah. it brings that level of confidence as well because it's kind of like well you know we we've done this before and that's not worked so we did this and we've done that and this is what you need to do you know in this situation so i think it just it 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 brought that level of confidence that experience yeah. um into the team and gave us that little probably little leg up as well and of course in 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 sort of tandem with that we were developing the the, the car for 2003 which you know clearly was um was a step forward from from the from the first off it was um it was a fast car like the previous car but it was an easy car to drive um in the respect that it was like yeah this this is this is this is quicker and it's it's doing it you know with probably you know 30 percent less effort and so we knew at that point we were we were kind of on to a a a winner and not only that as well, we've been previously running on Dunlop tyres, hadn't we, Brian, in 2001, 2002. Right, yeah. 
and is that because is that because do we run Dunlop because of the relationship with the road car side of business or, or no it? no not at all again again it is what do you need to win and that was um, also something that um, Pierre told me um, right right at the beginning he said you know what what tires are you using and I said well we're not looking at the um, at the cost of tires to make a decision we're looking at who who can give us the best tire yeah. And in the in the 2001 uh, deal, we got a really good development deal with with Dunlop, which was um, was critical because we wanted to do a lot of testing, and we wanted somebody who would build a bespoke tire for our car. Yeah. Um, and and that's what Dunlop did for us. But yeah, there's nothing like the experience of Michelin. So yeah. in, uh, I I, rem I remember doing the first test with Michelin at Snetterton. Yeah. And right. it, it's it's interesting because the, where the where the mission is really good or was really good, and it, it's still it's still actually true to this day. To to be honest, it's it's with the mission tire you can with with a, a Dunlop, you for example, you can brake in a straight line, and you can accelerate in a straight line, but if you try and put any lateral load on it, the, the car didn't really like it. Whereas with the Michelin, you could brake all the way into the corner, and also when you went to power, you could still have lock on and you still had good grip, and and that's where the Michelin was. It could just allow you to roll more speed through the corner over the Dunlop, and and you know we picked up probably a second and a half a lap around a short circuit like um, Snetterton. So of course, when we get to Le Mans, you know that that adds up by probably you know by by four or five you know at times. So um, you know the fact now we've got a good car, um, we've got the right tyres, um, we've got a team that's got the experience. Um, it was all starting to build, wasn't it? That, that confidence was building. We were starting to think, actually, we really have got something here that we can, we can, we can take. You know, and, uh, and also keeping it, uh, keeping it in house, and not letting um, these guys that had, um, yeah, they had a lot of experience, but they also still had to do it the Bentley way. Uh, yeah, we didn't uh, didn't allow. Um, uh, Brian, let's talk about Sebring. Yeah. Behind the scenes at Sebring, because I remember, because so so basically the the way that it was kind of what ended up working out was I I was obviously with Tom and Dindo in the kind of sports car drivers car, and the other car was the F1 drivers car with Johnny, David, and, and Mark, and um, my, so the, the car seven was kind of run more by the Yost guys, and car yeah. eight was predominantly run by the RTN guys, yeah. and. Um, and I remember it being quite a uh, quite a prickly week. And what I say prickly is there's a lot of kind of everyone trying to wind everybody up in a, in a competitive way. But we all knew that we had a chance and we were going to be competitive. So the drivers were winding each other up, but in a good way. You know, there was a lot of banter, but it was there was some definitely some winding up. And and also with the teams, you know, it was like well, yours were like well, we need to do this on the car, and the UK guys, well, we're going to do this on the car. And there was definitely some competition building. And, and it, it definitely seemed like World War Three was about to break out at some point. It started. It started a bit before that, uh, guy, because you remember that um, Johnny Johnny Herbert um, crashed into the wall at uh, oh, yeah. at Therese. Yeah. yeah. So um, this was just before Sebring. Um, we have a major shunt, and uh, and we only had two cars, so we um, we had to build a, another car very very quickly. Um, anyway, we started that, we, we kicked it off, new monocoque um, uh, in the cutting room being laid up and um, the uh, and the schedule was really, really tight. Um, and then we had all these guys coming over um, 
on a Monday and, and, and going back on a Friday. And then all of a sudden there was a German public holiday and, and half the team disappeared right. building a car and that threw the schedule out and said, no, no guys, sorry, this is, uh, this is a British program and, and you run to British time. There's not a British public holiday. There's not a bank holiday here. Uh, yeah. And uh, so they all went. So we said, okay, right. And we split the team. And so we put all the guys onto the car that needed building quickly, which was um, uh, car seven, your, yeah. your car. Yeah. Um, and ended up by, and that's how, um, and that car then got built. And then uh, the teams, when the, um, the other lot, the US guys came back, um, there, was a, there was this split, <laughs> um, which uh, I never told Pefkin about because he would have, he would have, yeah, strongly up for that. Yeah. Um, because he didn't, he didn't want to see that, um, that division. Um, but it, it worked very well because there was this inter, inter car rivalry. You know, um, if you look at some of the, the videos of the, of the, the windscreen cleaner, yeah, the, even the two, the two cars, the windscreen cleaners were having their own little competition and you could walk into the garage and say, well, see not not as tidy on that side as this side man you <laughs> you'd yeah. see them jump into action so there's a lot of competition all the way down you don't uh, I think, uh, plan you don't always see how much how much of a competitive spirit there is in the team all the way down yeah, yeah. this didn't really there. come out yeah. we've talked to, to mark blundell about this of course and we we're talking to derek bell about this and it hasn't come out they, they haven't talked about this that much, Brian. So it's good this, because Guy was very quiet when they talked about inter-team rivalry. In fact, there was a question directly on this. Do you remember, Guy? Um, in the Mark Blundell uh, podcast, I think Jonathan Tookwell asked about the team rivalry. And they both just went, yeah, a bit of friendly rivalry. And then we moved on. I thought there must be something. Well, I think, I think there's, al there's always rivalry between cars. I mean, obviously, we've both got the same car. And I think as time went by, we knew that we both were, were going to be in with a chance of winning. And it would come down to relatively fine margins, and I think everybody just became more focused, and probably in a in a in, as bright, in a, in a positive way, because I think yeah. everybody in the team were, wanted to win. There was nobody. There was nobody. We weren't we weren't carrying any dead wood. We, we were fairly lean and we we're fairly mean, but everybody there wanted to be there and wanted to win, and and, and that's the difference. You know, you can only do it with good people and good team. Uh, you know, good good team of people. You know, as drivers. You know, we, we do the best that we can, but we're, do, we're only as good as a team. And if the team are pushing, then it makes us want to push more and everybody motivates each other. And it's quite, it's quite you know, considering that we only did two races, really, yeah. in, that, in that scenario, yeah. you know, normal teams can take years to develop. Yeah. We actually had a group of people that were, well, a group of winners, really, um, yeah. when, it, when all said and done. The critical thing, as, uh, as you mentioned there, is uh, keeping it positive. So the competition is good as long as it's positive. If the competition gets negative, then, then you've got a tr uh, trouble in team management. And um, uh, we were able to keep it as positive rivalry. Um, there were uh, odd issues here and there, but it was uh, the information always had to be shared because the team was above everything. So if, if one car had a problem, the, the information had to be shared, the setup had to be shared. Yeah. Um, and and the engineers talking, and that's where Ralph Jutner's so good. Is he, you know, he stood between the two race engineers and made sure that they communicated with each other yeah. and kept the info flowing. Um, but uh, and and we were able to keep it um, positive. 
yeah. We did we did a lot of testing, Brian, didn't we? Did we, I mean yeah. I don't know how many we did, but I'm guessing we must have done two or three 30 odd hour tests. Well, we kept on with those 24 hour tests as uh, you know, just carrying on and, and grinding through it. And if you, if you've got a problem and you change a component, then you, you do another 24 hour test until it's right. And uh, I always remember, um, Jean Todd, and I used to explain this to, uh, quote, uh, Jean Todd to, to, uh, Dr. Pefkin when he asked me why we we're testing again. Um, Jean Todd did nine 24 hour tests for their win with Peugeot. Really? Nine. Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But preparation is the key because you know, when yeah. you arrive at the circuit, you know, you, you feel, you know, nothing, nothing's a given, is it? You know, but in the day it's all about preparation yeah. and no, no part should be on the car that hasn't done 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> at yeah. least you know and we test for 30 hours to make to make sure and uh, you know a lot of that we carried over into the uh, into the gt program yeah. so so what what kind of pressure did you were you feeling when when le mans when the race was coming up i mean obviously we, you know we all felt the pressure um but i mean obviously from your point of view it's year three you, you know you've, you've kind of you know you got you sort of said you're going to win le mans you've got the car your new car you've got everything in place i mean what kind of pressure were you feeling um that point yeah well um yeah. <laughs> difficult to describe you know you um you end up by just going over everything again and again and again uh, to make sure that everything is right you've covered all the bases um you've got to rely on your team you've got to empower the team and then and then let them get on with it and uh, i think we had established throughout the year that the guys knew what they were doing. Sebring was was important to settle the team down. After Sebring, I think things got a lot better. Got really good, actually. Everyone everyone yeah. got along really well, actually. Yeah, and yeah. Sebring was really sort of a a culmination where we had a massive problem in the in the in the scrutineering where yeah. the Americans measured the car in one way. Uh, we we didn't think it was that bad. There was a bit of a a bump in the floor pan, and they they decided that because if you hold the straight edge up. Um, one way the diffuser was too high and um, we pointed out if you hold it the other way the diffuser would be in spec but they weren't having anything of it the cars were put to the back of the grid but then um, I think after that everybody just just got down to it and yeah. and uh, did the best for the team yeah you know still keeping that that sort of intercar rivalry going but the healthy rivalry and uh, by the time we got to the mom we were so well prepared so yeah the pressure the pressure was there, but again, you know, Le Mans uh, is is a race that lets you win. Um, there's a great saying at, at Pikes Peak. Um, uh, their the motto, the the event motto, is the mountain will decide. Yeah, and it is very similar to Le Mans. The race will decide, and either the race comes to you or it doesn't. I remember Dr. Pefkin saying before the race, kind of a pre-race pre-race briefing. You know, his kind of saying was, you know we must finish first and second. And it wasn't like, you know, yeah. it, it's like... I, I climbed under the table for that. I, I really... Yeah, kind of like, <laughs> I remember it so well. And it, and it was like, you know, no pressure. But it, it's, it's incredibly, it's incredibly um, difficult to predict because even when you're as prepared as we were, anything can go wrong, can't it, as, 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 we, as, we, as we well know. But, I mean, you know, fortunately for us, um, you know, we had a... Certainly in our car, we had a, we had a pretty much trouble-free run. And I remember it being... Um, Joe Hausner, who was our engineer, was incredibly calm and, and, yeah. and with Ralph Yutner. I mean, Joe was one of those guys as an engineer, you know, you could go on the radio and say, Joe, my wheel's just fallen off. 
and he'd come on the radio and say to you, well, you know, you'll actually be faster with three wheels than you are with four, and you'd believe him. <laughs> you'd, go, you'd go quicker. And, and yeah. so he was really good, particularly for me, you know, being the kind of young guy in the car, he was very good at keeping, a, you know, keeping it all calm and level. Yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously, a lot of pressure when you're, when you're you know, racing for, for, you know, the other thing is doing Le Mans hard enough, but when you're racing for the win, yeah. you know, and you're at the front of the field, it's a lot different pressure to if you're kind of running yeah. fourth and fifth and, you know, because you, you can only mess it up at that point. So, um, but the, I mean, our car ran well and obviously car, car eight had a couple of small problems, really. Um, I mean, he, he, you know, by Le Mans standards. Well, Le Mans standards was also... Yeah. Relatively minor, but I mean, you you only had 17 seconds of unscheduled pit stop. Yeah, yeah. So so the, the race, the synthetic race that had been planned out ahead of time, it was only that 17 seconds where you had an overpressure. Yeah. Came in, pulled the decal off, let the pressure out, and went out again. Yeah. yeah. So how how did you feel after the win? Big big relief. Oh yeah, well, you know, it's one of those life experiences you can't repeat. Standing on the podium, as you know, looking yeah. down in that sea of um of supporters uh yeah amazing amazing relief yeah 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 um but uh, yeah that that that's what it shouldn't it shouldn't be relief it should be joy and i think if i compare the 2001 podium to the 2003 podium there was probably more joy in the 2001 because nobody expected it of us yeah. and nobody nobody knew where we would be or what we would do yeah um yeah, and the 2003 podium was relief. Satisfaction, <laughs> Joy, must have been really satisfying to have done that because you, you nailed your colours to the mast originally and said, we will do this. When other people, it seems like from listening to you, other people didn't quite believe that you would. Well, there was always that, that uh, question and you know, motorsport's a, a fickle mistress. You, know, you can do whatever you like, um, as you know, Guy, and it, it, it's a race and, and uh, things happen. Yeah. Um, so you couldn't predict what was going to happen, but you could only just do your best to make sure that everything went went right. And then, and then you've got to say, well, um, yeah, if there's an incident, because you just have to have a, a, a GT car turning in, and they haven't seen you, and that's the end of your race. However many twenty-four tests you've done, however prepared you are. It happened, but you've got to just make sure that then no problems will occur that you haven't that are not fate, yeah, or so, racing so incidents. It all came down to that that final twenty four hours of this three year program. But actually, going back to what we said originally, guy, the battles in the boardroom, the ones that people don't get to hear about, the victories had been won earlier on, and any one of those meetings that you'd had, Brian, when you were heading off to wherever you were heading off to, whichever corridor of power you were walking down with your file of paperwork, if one of those meetings had not gone right, then that 24 hours wouldn't have happened. Yeah. That's, like, uh, that's like an incident on the track, because if I'd been in, in that um, boardroom at, uh, in Wolfsburg, where we had Pierre Winterkorn and Pischerschrieder, if one of them had said, no, you're not doing that, we've, you know, we've been invested one billion euro in this company and we're not uh, you know we're not going to go motor racing anyone that said that uh, the program would have been dead in the water we wouldn't be sitting here today talking about it. um and it's as as much as a, a crash on the track getting the wrong answer and i always said to my team uh, and i stand by it is don't pick up a no always always fight for uh, coming back do some more work do some more homework do a little bit more of a study. 
don't get a no in the boardroom. Always pick up a yes, okay, if we do this, we could get it right, we could maybe do it. And it, it, it applied to going to Pike's Peak, doing the high speed records. Um, they all risk the brand because every time you go onto the track, every time you do something like that, you, you're putting the, you're nailing the brand's colors to the mast and, uh, and you will be, you know, the brand will be judged by your performance. Yeah. So you've got to get everything right. Um, and, and, and make sure that um, you don't do the brand a disservice. So yeah, that's, that's the pressure really. And then you were, they were sort of fast forward 10 years later and they were once again trying to persuade people that Bentley could make a, a pretty decent racing car. Everything you've been yeah. through, you had to go back to the boardroom and persuade them all again. Well, yeah, that was uh, another interesting, uh, interesting saga. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we tried very hard to go back to Le Mans and I had Dr. Pefkin with a pen in his hand to sign a contract. Um, and then the 2008 crash came um, and, and we, we just couldn't do it. Um, so we were really close to doing it and then um, uh, pulled the plug on that, um, which was a real shame. And then after that, the, the rules changed and we probably couldn't have afforded it after that uh, when the hybridization came in. Um, so th then uh, we had the situation with, where manufacturers getting more and more interested in GT racing, GT3. Um, yeah, our car was a, a, is a four-wheel drive and didn't comply with GTE regulations. Um, but back then, um, uh, GT3, you, as a tuner, uh, you, could, you could enter a GT3. So you could you could homologate, uh, build, homologate, and uh, and enter GT3 as a tuner. And I remember clearly there were um, things came to head when there were three Corvettes being built to different specifications um, by three different tuners. Um, and and eventually it said, well, how how would you work? Can you imagine Claude Simon um, trying to do a BOP on three different cars of the same brand guy? Yeah. Um, so. Um, but GT racing then uh, um, looked like the right forum to get back into uh, into motorsport with with the company um, being um, a contested GT3 being contested by you know 12, 12 OEMs. Uh, you know, no, there's no other series in the world that has twelve manufacturers um, competing. So it was quite attractive, um, but whilst tuners were getting involved, um, <clears throat> they, we had uh, some tuners asking us whether they could they could use the car, um, and rather than let them <clears throat> just guess specifications, we helped them quite a bit. But um, <clears throat> then, in in helping them, they they then submitted some plans to the FIA that were just so crazy that the FIA wrote a strongly worded letter to to um bentley md which was durheimer at the time and said this is this is just nonsense what what is your company doing what are you allowing these these are dtm cars because they were just space frame silhouettes and um i got summoned to wolfsburg to explain myself <laughs> and uh, and that's when uh, a stop was put to it uh, to, just said look tuners will not develop this car um, and um, so I said, and, and 
I was under a lot of pressure just to can the whole thing and said, no, this, this is where we should be. This is where a brand, uh, you've got Lamborghini, you've got Ferrari, you've got Porsche, you've got McLaren. They're all out there um, with their flagship models and uh, racing on, on an equal footing you know, with, with the, the BOP. Um, this is where we should be. Um, but having, having been shot in the foot by a tuner, uh, we had a real up, upward battle um, to, to try and convince the FIA. So I, again, in, in, in this boardroom meeting, uh, where I was told, oh, look, you've, you've embarrassed the company now with this tuner submission. Um, I said, right, well, give me a chance to just talk to the FIA and explain to them what, uh, what we could do as a manufacturer. Um, I contacted Stefan Rattel, got his, uh, his approval that, that this, this could work if the FIA approved and then assembled a team um, to, to put the, um, the plans together or the, the, they were not cutting metal at all. I had to promise that I wasn't going to use, I wasn't going to build any cars in, in secret in some, some uh, corner of the workshop and use uh, company resources for that. But so everything was done in the virtual world. And then I got um, the FIA across and we went through how we would build the car. And it was really a, 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 a great um, a demonstration where we, we stripped the car in the virtual world, showed them all the, the weight of the components that, was coming out, that were coming out and what we were putting back in. And they were amazed and they got hold of Doham and said, we we are um, absolutely impressed with what what the team have done, and um, um, we think we'll approve this as a GT. So it came from them. It wasn't me going back saying, "Look, yeah, give me a second chance uh, to uh, to put things right with the FIA." They they went to to Durheimer. Yeah, it's quite political, um, wasn't it? And that really um, then swung it, and he said, "Okay, um, yeah, you've got." You've got three months to to prove it can be done. Yeah, and of course, De Derheim, Derheimer, who was the um, CEO of Bentley, um, was previously at Porsche, and and he's he's a kind of motorsport fan anyway, isn't he? So yeah, he's, yeah. he's always into racing, and so yeah. so you know, I think he was he was a good CEO to have at that time because he was going to be supportive, assuming that the car was eligible to race and. I guess with the Bentley, you know, with the GT, with the GT, uh, Continental GT, to get the weight out, it's things like, you know, all the leather, the wood, the electronics, everything that makes it a Bentley, pretty much. Yeah. You take yeah. all that luxury out. Yeah. Um, but actually got the, got the weight down of the car to, was it 1,300? Yeah, 1,300 was the generation one. Yeah. But, you know, Dohammer didn't believe it could be done. Um, you know, this is where I, I, I got my three months. I said, I will show you that it can be done. We've done it in the virtual world. Now we've, you know, we'll continue and we'll show you it can be done. And that's, he said, okay, you've got three months to do it. Um, and that's, uh, we kicked off. But, and the danger there is you've got a guy who's had the resources of Porsche behind him. Mm. And, you know, where you, you can have budgets hidden everywhere. Um, but in Bentley, we're pretty exposed. <laughs> we were, you know, we were running on, on, on very, very thin um, budgets. So, um, it was important to get it absolutely right. And Daham is very, very demanding in terms of what he wanted because he had this Porsche template and Porsche are probably the most successful customer racing 
company um, around. And so um, once once we had convinced him, then then he was our biggest fan. But yeah. it took some convincing. And again, yeah, Paul, if, if he had said no, that was it. That was the end. It would have been like a, a racing incident where your car, you yeah. DNF. <laughs> so, so Brian, so just tell us a little bit about. Um, obviously, you know, M Sport was 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 chosen to design, build, manufacture the the GT3. Um, how did that come about, and why 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 M Sport? Well, firstly, with with GT3, none of the OEMs who are are building these cars do it in-house. I think not even Ferrari is doing it in-house. Everybody has a technical partner because the cars are so different. Um, well, Porsche does it, but the body shell goes down the line and, and has the case fitted. But you need a technical partner uh, to to develop the car. You can't do it on the, on the production line. So um, we were looking for a technical partner. But again, uh, like at Le Mans, uh, we go racing, but you've got to go racing as Bentley. And so it's, it's doing it in a Bentley way, not the way everybody does it. Because uh, the company's name is at stake. You've got to hold uh, the reputation up. Um, <clears throat> and you, know, you, 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 you don't want to get beaten by anybody. Mm. Um, but uh, it's it's really the way the way you do it, the way you go about it. So we were looking for for partners to go with, um, and and we we were talking to a number of people. But you know, when you find that they're also doing uh, a GT3 for another manufacturer, and you say, well, hang on a minute, that's not exclusivity. The brand needs exclusivity. Um, so <clears throat> I, I I looked around a, a lot as to who who could, um, could do the job. And, and we're, as Bentley, we're members of the, uh, the MIA, the Motorsport Industries Association. Um, and we're, we're the only um, manufacturer, um, Bentley's the only manufacturer that's a member of that. And that gives you an, a really good overview of, of the industry in, in the UK. And <clears throat> when I'd uh, exhausted all the the, the the race shops and the manufacturers, the race car manufacturers, building cars that looking for their exclusivity. I decided to start looking for uh, for something else. Somebody who builds a really strong um, steel monocoque, um, and and uh, you know people are looking at, at reliability. So then I started looking in the rally world, and ProDrive were doing something similar with 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 Aston. Um, but uh, again, ProDrive, you could have gone there, but you're looking for exclusivity. They, they exclusively ask. And um, I then uh, looked at, at uh, Malcolm's operation and uh, decided to give him a ring and, and talk to him about it and said, look, you know, um, are, you, are you able with your Ford contract to, um, to get involved in, in GT3 racing? And there's a bit of a silence on the end of the line. He, late, he admitted later that he didn't know what GT3 was <laughs> as a category. <laughs> um, so, um, but Malcolm being Malcolm, you know, and always he's, he's a, an absolute competitor and a total racer, you know, he, he just said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's so interesting, isn't it? Multi-Matic we're doing the Fords and, and yet Malcolm's doing a Bentley from M Sport. Yeah, so... Yeah. Um, 
anyway, yeah, we went up, we went up and had a look with, with the team. I didn't tell them where they were going because I didn't want any, any preconception. Um, and uh, we went up and, and had a look around and, and the guys just said, yeah, okay, this, this is the place. This is where Bentleys can be built. And uh, I mean, it's a fantastic operation. Uh, it's, got, it's got all the Bentley values um, about it. It's uh, the attention to detail uh, in the place. Was, it was just Bentley through and through. Uh, and they embraced it. Um, they took on the spirit of the brand. Um, the, the cars were developed as strong, robust cars. I mean, our first race at Monza, um, <laughs> guy's teammate tried very hard <laughs> to... Um, to bend it, it just uh, in qualifying. Stephen was really pushing hard, and, and Stephen Kane, yeah. yeah so Steve, yeah, Stephen was telling. Stephen was telling. So, so basically, just so, so I, Brian, at the end of 2013, Brian called me. I was walking the dog, and, and sort of asked me if I would be interested in rejoining Bentley again. Um, and of course, you know, it was it was a for me it was a no brainer to be back with Bentley again. But of course, it was with a GT car, which I'd never even driven a GT car before. So it was a completely new experience um but so so i kind of once we got going into the testing I and mean, i could do so much but i was learning as much as the team were learning about gt3 so i brought in stephen kane who i'd driven with previously driven for nissan uh the previous season so i had a pretty good knowledge of gt3 cars and particularly front engine gt3 cars and um he came in and, and was really kind of quite instrumental in helping us get up to speed or get the program up to speed and, and, and in a great, great driver. And we also brought in Andy Merrick and that was the sort of formation of car seven. Um, but I remember being at Monza and Stephen was doing the track walk. He was telling us about the particular corner. I can't, I can't remember the name of the corner now, but the chicane anyway. And um, he was saying, oh, you have to be really careful here because if you hit the curb too much, the car rotates and you end up in the wall. So he's like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll be careful, we'll be careful. And of course he goes out and qualifying in the same corner, stuffs it into the wall that he'd just been telling us about. Um, <laughs> of course, all the M Sport guys were winding him up. So, you know, they they put like an invoice on the on the uh, on the car the following morning. So when we arrive at the race, a, Malcolm said, Here's your invoice. It was, you know, seventy thousand pounds. <laughs> you know, as, as only Malcolm can do. Yeah, um, yeah, I can imagine. I think it was that. Half serious to be fair. Um yeah, it probably <laughs> was. The, the interesting thing was the car was a mess. It was an absolute mess. And and uh, competitors, you know, you know, McLaren guys walked past and just said, "Oh, sorry about that. That's a, you know a DNS. Yeah. You know, you guys not going to start." But and that's where um, the team and the choice of a rally team really came into its own. These guys are used to putting cars straight, and um, you know they worked through the night. They pulled it straight. They welded it up, and the next morning it was on the grid. You did not know it had been an accident. Yeah. There yeah. was no gaffer tape anywhere there was it was just looked pristine yeah yeah it, it, it was it was it was great and 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 so we'd, we'd kind of done we'd pre previous to that we'd done the Abu Dhabi race the 12-hour race which is kind of like, like a warm-up race or first race to kind of get some miles on the car and the car performed well I think we finished fourth in the race um yeah. but um and then at Monza we we I think we finished ended up finishing like maybe sixth or seventh but it, seventh. It was, seventh and eighth that's right, yeah. But but the car was quick. I think I think qualified. I think Stephen qualified maybe in the top four. So he was kind of on the second row. So the car was, you know, had a lot of potential. And um, but the car looked amazing. And the team looked really well. You know, again, it was very much a step above what everybody else was doing in, in GT3. And I think um, it kind of made a, made a great impact. And of course, um, we then won 
the next race at Silverstone, which is obviously yeah. a British, British car, home race on British soil. So um, it was a pretty much you know, a storming drive with Stephen pretty much snatching the win within, on the last sort of couple of laps. Um, but again, you know, great result. Um, and for Bentley to be winning in that second era, kind of yeah. obviously one in the Le Mans era, to come into GT3 and then win again. Um, you know, again, what, what a, I mean, I know for me it was a, a fantastic experience, one that I really enjoyed because it was the first time with the GT, back with Bentley again. And of course, we've got the picture of us on the podium. I think we're all, yeah. again, relieved probably again that yeah. We, yeah. we've actually done it. It was, was amazing. Again, the expectations, nobody knew what to expect of us. Um, you know, they really didn't think we could do it. Um, and, that, and that's really the great satisfaction that you get um, out of putting a, putting a program together where there's, there's doubt uh, and then uh, proving that it, it can be done. And uh, yeah, that was, that was a great, great victory, that, um, that Silverstone yeah. victory. And again, yeah. those battles in the boardroom won you that race or at least got you to the grid. Uh, yeah, I mean that, that it was just what the company needed to uh, as a as a pick up the pride uh, again. You know, in the brand, uh, you're competing against Ferraris and McLarens and Lamborghinis. It really um, engenders pride, and and motorsport is is an understated business tool. It, it really is effective in to, in um, promoting a brand, uh, getting brand values. I mean, uh, in in the GT program, uh, we tried to do exactly what we did in Oman as well. If the the uh, the crew, the team, always well turned out. Um, we had white gear, uh, probably not always practical, but it, it uh, yeah it looked good. You you couldn't mistake a Bentley team member. Uh, I remember interviewing you, Guy, in your, in your brand new crisp white uniform with Malcolm at the Autosport show just before the Bentley program got going for a TV show. It's actually a rally TV show, ironically. Oh, um, right. <laughs> and, and it did look different. It, it really, you, you did look like you, you just walked out of a, a Bentley factory, which was, you know. Credit to Malcolm in an M Sport. I mean, they, they do sort of sign into those values as well. I mean, Malcolm yep. is incredibly meticulous and, you know, makes sure everything looks right. So actually it was a great fit for, for yep. us because, you know, always looked amazing. Everything was well turned out. Um, but it's incredibly hard racing, GT3 racing, you know, as we found, you know, we kind of had a fairy tale start, but, you know, throughout the years, you know, following, you know, it, it, it was just incredibly difficult because with the BOP, you know, it, it, it becomes quite a political melting pot because you've got all these manufacturers that have all got to win races to keep... For anyone listening, I just know what it is. It's a balance of power. So you've got cars with different yeah. drivetrains, different power units, and they're trying to balance it all out. Aren't you? So your turbo's being turned down and you that's right. So everybody's kind of, it's kind of who shouts the loudest. It's like, well, you know, we need to win some races or do well because our program's in jeopardy. So there's a lot of that going on, which again, you know, as drivers, we're kind of kept out of. We, we hear what's going on, but, you know, people like Brian and Malcolm, they're the ones that have to go and argue the case week in, week out. You know, we, we, you know, we need some help. We need some more power. You know, they've got this and we need that. So that, that's the kind of the unfortunate side of GT racing. And the big yeah. OEMs have got people in the pit lane, haven't they? They've, they've yeah, got people walk down. And... Le Mans racing is a bit more kind of like you just, you, you know, you, you develop what you've got and you, and you yeah. go and race it. GT3 is, is a bit more, you, you've got very but, parameters to work in. But it, but it, it does create... Le Mans, the GTE, the balance of performance in GTE is... Sorry, I think I lost you there, but um, uh, BOP in Le Mans, 
um, is, I think, as um, as opaque as it is in GD3. I think the GD3, is, uh, you can still understand what they're doing to level a, a front-engined, a rear-engined, a mid-engine uh, car and, and, and get them to perform on the same level and um, and try and keep it all all understandable. Um, but the same thing happens in GTE at Le Mans. Yeah. You know, yeah. When you see the, the Porsches getting five kilograms or Corvette sandbagging um, and, and uh, you know, only putting their, pulling out the true colors and, and qualifying and then changing between qualifying and the race. So it's unfortunate when you've got cars of different, um, uh, you know, from uh, different base units to, to get them to compete on an equal basis. It's not a prototype class. So it, it is a necessary evil, unfortunately. So I meant balance of performance, not balance of power, yeah, really, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, so Brian, where, where, where does the sort of GT program stack up against Le Mans program for you personally? What, where, do you, where do you get the most, I think I've asked this before, but where do you get the most satisfaction, pride, enjoyment? Um, <clears throat> they, they're so different, Guy. Um, the, uh, what I really get this, um, the most uh, satisfaction out of is is when people think it can't be done, hmm. um, and in in certainly in the GT3 there was more uh, there were more skeptics in the GT3 program uh, than there were um, in the Le Mans program. Uh, the Le Mans program we we had a, a real crack team, um, and uh, and we made sure that we covered all the bases, done all the testing in. In the GT3 program, uh, we were pretty much, you know, we had a, uh, a rookie team, um, a rookie manufacturer, um, and, and a car that everybody said, well, this isn't, uh, you know, this can't get down to the weight of a, a competitive GT car. So that very satisfying there to actually prove all the critics wrong. Yeah. You didn't have a sister program either, did you? So, you know, the, the rest of the group wasn't doing anything that you could learn from or, or sort of piggyback on, like perhaps the Le Mans project started from. Uh, well, certainly uh, the, the organization and the lessons learned in, in organizing um, and getting the Le Mans team together, making sure it happened um, and, and making sure everybody worked together, um, they were, that was all valuable experience. Um, also testing and, and not compromising um, on, on testing um, is always a, a battle to make sure that um, the teams keep, uh, keep on testing and making sure that you resolve every problem. Um, and then, of course, there's another aspect to it is, uh, is selling cars to customers and, and making sure they have a good experience. And so, you know, the GT3 is the most expensive Bentley that's sold. Um, and so, you know, when a guy um, spends that much money, a customer spends that much money, he needs to have a really good experience. Yeah. Um, so there are quite a lot of um, aspects to gt3 racing that are not in prototype racing yeah uh, prototype racing a little bit more pure you're entirely in your own you know uh, you you create your own destiny almost um with the amount of work you do in gt3 racing and a lot of other aspects to it yeah. you guys with your victories in the boardroom and on the racetrack have have really given provenance to Bentley that it probably had when it won Le Mans back in the 1930s. And I think that that's something which a lot of people have said, and it's out there. And um, I'm not saying that for the first time, but you must feel a big part of that, both of you, when you see a Bentley on the road or you see somebody at uh, Goodwood with their Bentley parked up in the car park. They're probably at Goodwood with their Bentley because you guys won at Le Mans at Silverstone. 
Well, I, ho I hope so. Yeah. I hope so um, because I think it's a it's a great business tool, as I've said before, it's, um, and uh, and it shouldn't be underrated. Um, I know uh, manufacturers tend to to pull the plug on 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 motorsport when things start going bad because it seems to be a yeah a sport as such, but it is a tool. It's a business tool, and and uh, you know in in the great world of of marketing expenditure. Um, maybe I'm biased, but it's really good value for money. <laughs> <laughs> you see now, now, now you can see he could sell he could sell some to the Arabs, couldn't he? You see why these programs <laughs> have gone through. You know, <laughs> you can see. I mean, probably he's retired. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, so the, the GT3 program, Brian. I mean, obviously, you know, it was a lot of fun. Um, I mean, I certainly enjoyed it. And I think we all enjoyed it. I mean, um, we obviously had we had wins in America. We had uh, wins in Europe. Um, we came so close to winning the championship. You know, well, twice with car seven, a couple of times with car eight. Um, but not quite, not quite got there, unfortunately. And of course, Spa was the one that we all wanted to win. I know you wanted to win desperately, and and I think as drivers, we all of course wanted to win that Spa 24 hours. But um, I mean, you came very, very close a couple of times, but yeah. unfortunately, you know, Lady Luck wasn't quite on our side. Um, and 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 you do need an element of luck and good fortune. Yeah. Um, but you know, we also got to race at Bathurst, which you know. Yeah. That for us was was certainly for me as a driver. I never thought I'd ever get to race there. And, and when you you know you were able to convince the the board for us to go and race in Australia, where it, quite frankly Bentley don't really sell sell many cars in Australia. But to get us to go there and race, um, and the, the the Australians absolutely love the sound of the V8. And and again we came very close during your time to to mm -hmm. to to win uh, that race. Um, mm -hmm. And of course they they won the they won the last one this year, uh, which was yeah. great for for the brand to do that. Um, you know, it's uh, but of course you've had you know since then you've had Pikes Peak, you've had um, the the Bentayga fastest SUV at Pikes Peak, yeah. the uh, the Continental GT as well, the new Continental GT, which is fastest production car at Pikes Peak. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. So we got the production production car record um, um, last year and the year before the the SUV record. But getting the production car record with it, that that was really special because you know it was. Um, the record was held by uh, a Porsche 911 Turbo, um, you know, and to and and it's a production car. Yeah. Um, and so you're limited in what you can do, and there's no balance of performance. <laughs> yeah. So um, the uh, yeah, that was that was interesting. What what an event! It's just an incredible event that every every motorsport enthusiast should have on their bucket list to uh, to look at that. It's uh, it's Definitely. an event that's Definitely put that on the definitely put that on the to do list for sure. Yeah. Um, so Paul, should we should we crack on with some questions? Some some as well. Yeah, some, we've got some quick I've fire, got, but then there's. I've got. Some, we have to uh, apologise, don't we, for Jason's question? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll come to this one in a minute. It's Jason Plato's question to you. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to ask it. I'm not quite sure how you're going to answer, but I said that I'd do it. But we'll get there in a minute. Um, so I've just got some quick fire questions for you, Brian. Just so all you got to answer is the first thing that comes into your mind. Right. Our first answer, which comes to your mind. So, um, we've got Top Gear or Fifth Gear. Uh, top Gear. Yeah. GT3 or Le Mans prototypes. Oh, <laughs> that's unfair. That's your favorite yeah. child, isn't it? <laughs> um, probably right now, GT3. Okay. Because it's it's closer to the production. Yeah. Beach holiday or adventure holiday. Sorry, say again. A beach holiday or adventure holiday? Beach. Yeah. Dogs or cats? Cats. 
Oh, oh no, the win rate is gone. We had 100% hit rate on dogs until now. Um, oversteer or understeer? Ah, uh, oversteer gets me into trouble, but I love it. Yeah, uh, so good. Um, Birkin or Bonato? Um, Bonato. Yeah. A V6 or V8? V8. Right, okay. Here, here we go, here we go, Paul. Here we go. Uh, no, but Jason had had a couple of beers, hadn't he? By the time he asked this question, yeah. <laughs> Jason had about five five cigarettes during the um, during the uh, podcast and about five beers. Uh, so, of course, when we got to the end, his question. Now, you don't have to answer this. So reveal the location, the car, and the age of your first bit of action. <laughs> wow. Okay. You don't uh, have to answer that one. <laughs> the car. Um, well, yeah. Well, uh, <clears throat> so fortunately, the, that was um, my then girlfriend and my current wife. <laughs> oh, so, that's good. Um, as I told you, I was into motocross, and my the car was a, a mini pickup. <laughs> How's that? Interesting. From um, the back of the pickup, and uh, I had a motorcycle on the back. Wow. <laughs> So I leave the rest to your imagination. Legend, great. Thanks for that, Jason Plato. Yeah, 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 Jason. So Brian, did you have a question for our next guest? I'm, I'm, I think I know who it might be, but I, I'm not quite ready to reveal it yet. Oh, well, it's not, uh, probably not as adventurous as... as uh, <laughs> it doesn't have to be. <laughs> as Jason, but uh, yeah, what I want to know is, um, in these current uncertain times, um, what would you do with your last tank of petrol? Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Fantastic. All right, Paul. Well, we've done we've done battle in the racetrack on the rally stage, as I said earlier, and and now in the boardroom, I for one was fascinated to to see the link between what goes on before pen has even touched paper, or in the latest program, the computer keyboard has even and aerodynamics those battles really are the ones that you don't hear about so for me and for guy as well it's important i think that we went there and we've done done that that story guy because it's such a big part of what you do out there on the racetrack as well yeah i mean you know i really appreciate it i mean um you know brian's obviously done a lot for my career and and um you know there's a lot of lot of work gone in behind the scenes over the years and uh it's just, yeah, it's fascinating to hear it. I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, you don't get to hear all the stories. You just, you know, you arrive at the circuit, the car's there and you go racing. Um, as I said, it's all the work that gets you to the racetrack. And, uh, you know, I think Brian's proved that he's a master at, uh, at getting these programs up and running and also executing and, and making it a winning program. So um, I know obviously, Brian, now you've retired from, from Bentley Motorsports. So you're on to Pastures New, you're building a Ford Escort. And, um, you know, we look forward to uh, seeing you out in, in some rallies soon. And, uh, and uh, maybe I'll come and do some co-driving for you. And, uh, oh, that's brave. <laughs> <laughs> it is brave, yeah. Because I have been in the car with you before. So it is, it, it is brave. But I'll have a few. We'll have, we'll, if not, we'll have a few glasses of red wine afterwards and, uh, and enjoy That'd it. That would be good, yeah. But yeah. Uh, thank you so much again. And, and really appreciate yes. you coming on, on the podcast. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah.